Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Many of us use some form of social media every day, and when severe weather threatens your city, social media can play a vital role in sharing life-saving information. With so many voices out there, it's important to know who to trust. Meteorologist Rick Smith, the warning coordination meteorologist for the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma, is one of those trusted voices. He is widely known for his tireless efforts in using social media to inform and educate the public to further our goal of becoming a weather-ready nation. We'll discuss some of the advantages and challenges meteorologists face in social media landscapes and how we can all improve as communicators going forward. Rick Smith, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Marshall, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Oh, uh, well, I was, as I mentioned to you off off the mic, so excited when I heard that we had you on. Rick Smith is just one of my favorite meteorologists in the community. Uh, we had him on the television version of the show. Uh, he's very well known in the meteorological circles. Uh, are, are you still also a panelist, I believe so, on the Weather Brains podcast as well? Not not right now. I'm kind of kind of taking a little break from that Uh I don't know. Things are busy. I don't know how you you full time podcasters do do all that you do here. It's a lot of work. Yeah, well, I, I know he, he used to be involved in the outstanding Weather Brains effort, and shout out to all of our friends there at the Weather Brains as well. But I, I'm I'm just so happy we have a chance to talk to you. We're gonna this is gonna be a tour de force discussion with Rick here. But let me give you some of his background. He's the warning coordination meteorologist at the National Weather Service Norman. He's been there for 17 years in that role. He's his career began in 1992 in Memphis, and then he moved on to and Fort Worth to the uh, National Weather Service Southern Region Headquarters. He has a bachelor's degree in meteorology from the University of Memphis. Uh, he's just one of those people you just want to talk to. So, Rick, before we really dive in, tell us your weather story. How'd you get where you are? Oh, gosh. I, for as long as I can remember, as far back as I can remember as a child, I was uh, fascinated and terrified by weather. And I, I, you know, I specifically remember as early as first grade having a career goal of being a meteorologist. I mean, this is all I ever really wanted to do. Kind of had the same backstory a lot of meteorologists have of, of having that fascination, but also being at the same time, I, I had a lot of storm anxiety as a kid, uh, even into my teenage years. Uh, so yeah, there, there was this, it was kind of that dual thing of, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by tornadoes. I'm fascinated by storms, but I'm terrified of them at the same time. So that's that's kind of my, I mean, that, that I just remember that for as long as I, as young as I can remember back uh, to. I don't have a, a pivotal moment or a storm or anything that sparked my interest. It's just always been in me. Uh, and growing up in the Memphis area, you know, of course, being in Atlanta, the Southeast has interesting weather pretty much all year long. Uh, so I was exposed to a lot of storms, a lot of weather, and, and that interest just never died and never, never stopped, and, and here I am. 
Yeah, and, and and we're certainly thankful for that interest because you you're just so important to the overall weather enterprise. Now, you I mentioned in the introduction that you are the warning coordination meteorologist, and I know that every National Weather Service uh, office forecast office has that position. Explain to the Weather Geeks listeners what a warning coordination meteorologist is and what it means to be that in what many people consider the weather mecca there in central Oklahoma. Well, the, being the warning coordination meteorologist here is certainly, it's my dream job. I mean, it's it's something I early in my career thought I would never be able to attain, and I'm just so proud to be here and so proud to be able to, to represent the office and represent the weather service and work with so many great people. The, the warning coordination meteorologist, there is one in every weather service forecast office and also the Storm Prediction Center and other weather service centers as well. We're kind of the the external affairs branch of the office, kind of the sales and marketing, customer service. We do a lot of um, work on building and maintaining and strengthening external relationships with our partners. We call our our partners in the weather service. uh, We refer to our the emergency management, public safety community, also the broadcast media at all different levels, whether it's a small town radio station all the way up to the weather channel or a national media outlet. So, So my job is to help manage and coordinate all those efforts to be sure that the people that we're working so hard for to serve everybody from the public to those public safety officials and media partners that we're doing what we need to do and that we have those relationships. So, um, you know, a lot of people think you're in Norman and, you know, we have this fairly compact tornado season in the spring and it's like, well, what do you do the other nine months of the year? Well, the other nine months of the year, warning coordination meteorologists and the other people in the office are working hard to be sure that we're ready for the next weather event. We're going to, exercises with emergency management partners and having media workshops with our television partners and there's all kinds of things that go on but basically um, my job here is to kind of manage all those all those efforts and doing it here in Norman is is it's kind of what you think it might be I mean we have a lot of severe weather here we have a lot of winter weather we have high impact weather that affects us that can impact us just about any time of the year uh, so, so it's it's a it's a busy job. It's not this is not somewhere to work if you uh, want to have a lot of downtime or a lot of boredom uh, when you come to work. Because even when we're not issuing tornado warnings or ice storm warnings or flood warnings, uh, we're either working to learn from the event that we just went through, or we're working to get ready for the next event. Yeah, this is a great, great discussion with Rick Smith here. Rick, I want to take the liberty here. I'm going to deviate a little bit from some of what I, where I wanted to go. We're going to dive into social media and communicating weather. But since you did explain the weather warning coordination meteorologist, I don't suspect that many people out there listening to Weather Geeks may understand sort of how a weather service, National Weather Service forecast office is made up. Now, it's made up of a warning coordination meteorologist, but could you just briefly tell the listeners what other types of meteorologists and staff are in a typical forecast office? Sure. Yeah, there, there are 122 local forecast offices around the country, and these are your frontline city county level information offices. These are the offices where your tornado warnings come from, where your local weather forecasts and information comes from. Uh, Those offices are staffed by approximately 25 people. The numbers vary a little bit office to office, but um, every office has a management team. There's a meteorologist in charge who's 
as the name implies, in charge of the office. There's a warning coordination meteorologist who's a member of that management team. And there's also a science and operations officer where the the WCM deals with outside activities. The SU, the shorthand SU, Science and Operation Officer, uh, deals with internal training, coordination types of things. Uh, also at each office, there are probably an average of 10 meteorologists who actually, those are the meteorologists who are most often working the ships. We work rotating ships 24 hours a day. Um, and those are the meteorologists who are doing the forecast, who are producing the warnings. Um, then there's also a lot more support staff. I consider myself a support role in the office to help support the operations, but there's also an administrative assistant who makes sure that we get our paychecks and make sure that we're able to travel places when we need to. Um, there's a hydrologist in many offices that deals with water issues specifically for that area. Uh, there's an information technology officer who helps to maintain our computer systems. So there's a whole network of people, really the core of a weather service office are those approximately 10 meteorologists who are working shifts around the clock and producing that weather information. Everybody else on the fringes uh, is there to support that operation. Yeah. And I, I just want to take this opportunity to just give a big shout out to everyone within the National Weather Service for what you do. Uh, th that $1 billion National Weather Service budget is one of the most important and no brainer investments in the history of the federal system, given what Rick and Rick and his colleagues do for us on a day to day basis. Now I want to shift to communicating our message. I want to start, I want to get to social media, but you do have a relationship with emergency managers and media and others, as you said, tribal officials, local officials. How do you nurture and build those relationships so that you know that you are delivering a consistent and trusted message to those particular stakeholders? Yeah, it, it, my job really is all about helping to build those relationships. It's everybody in the office's job to help maintain those relationships, but certainly uh, keeping those going is a, is a huge part of, of what we do. And, you know, there, we, we talk about in disaster preparedness and emergency management, you know, when a disaster happens, that's not the time to be introducing yourselves to your the people you're working with or handing out business cards at a disaster. Uh, we have to have those relationships before the event happens. So that involves, that's a year round process. That involves, um, obviously we're working with the emergency managers immediately before a significant weather event, whether it's a winter storm or severe weather event. We're sending emails, we're doing webinars and conference calls specifically for those groups to give them not only the forecast that everybody gets out from just looking at our webpage, but also giving them some specialized, what we call decision support services giving them specialized information to help them make the decisions that they need to make, whether it's closing a school or uh, organizing or, or arranging to have overtime for public works crews to clear ice and snow off the roads or to whatever the case may be. But those relationships require a year round effort. So we're, while we're not doing that, we're, we're doing things like attending emergency management conferences and meetings and workshops. Um, National Weather Service meteorologists are becoming well-versed in uh, a lot of the same language, a lot of the same skill sets that emergency managers have, uh, the incident command system, the language that, 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 that emergency responders speak of at the scene of a disaster or an emergency. We're taking courses in that to learn how to better communicate information in the language that those public safety officials are speaking. There's courses that we're taking. Um, 
on the media side, we're, we're constantly working to strengthen and build relationships. We have, at least in our office here, twice a year, we'll have a media workshop for all of our TV meteorologist partners at the 10 different TV stations that uh, cover parts of our area. We'll invite them here to the Weather Center. We'll have a workshop. And we talk as colleagues, as partners, as teammates about the challenges that we all face in communicating weather information and talk about uh, and anything from tornado warning practices to how to communicate tornado safety messages. Um, all of those things are, are very, very important in, in building and maintaining those relationships. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Rick Smith, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma. Now, I want to shift the gears a bit, and I want to start off with a uh, something that you've been quoted as saying. Our, our, our outstanding Weather Geeks producers found this uh, quote. You said, social media has been a huge benefit to the office, but it has changed the way we operate. Did you jump on the social media bandwagon immediately or did you have to come around to it? Gosh, I think our office and I and our office jumped on it uh, very quickly, probably before we should have. And in some ways, we, we, we really wanted to get into social media as soon as we saw Facebook and, and Twitter especially appealed to us. We knew that that was somewhere that we really needed to be. I mean, that not only is it a vehicle to another way for us to broadcast weather information, to send weather information out to people on their mobile devices, their phones, their computers, wherever they may be, but it was all, we also recognized it as being a social medium. It's a way to communicate. So it's two-way communication. And that's really one of the biggest benefits we've seen of it is that two-way communication, not just the not just the fact that people can give us information, give us reports and pictures and information about storms in their area, which is hugely beneficial for us, but also just being able to interact. I mean, for for the longest time, the Weather Service is one of these monolithic government agencies. You know, it's just a voice coming out of a weather radio. That's really the only way that we had to communicate directly with the people that we serve. Um, it's a way to interact, to show people that, hey, we're people too. We live in this community. We have senses of humor. We have uh, emotions. We have attitudes. We have feelings. And, and you know, and we, we care about the people that we serve. So, yeah, we, we jumped on it very, very quickly. Uh, we were one of the first offices on both Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we were, were proud of the fact that we kind of helped jumpstart that. Since then, many weather service offices around the country have just excelled at, at communicating weather information and using uh, those, those media to, to uh to talk about weather. And, and, and you, you specifically mentioned Twitter. Now, I, I've been a bit critical of Facebook at times because I, I feel like it's a bit more stagnant because you can post something, for example, on Facebook and you someone might see it immediately and someone might see it five days from now. Um, but there are other sort of more immediate uh, modes of Facebook now with things like Facebook Live. But you specifically mentioned Twitter. Uh, do you feel that one platform or another is better for sort of immediate warnings of a, of a, a, a pressing situation with the weather happening in real time? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, for immediate warnings for like more real time information, I certainly would lean toward Twitter heavily. Facebook has its advantages and 
one of the things that we find, and I think this is true in other weather service offices as well, is in some areas, some parts of our area, my, my area covers 56 counties in two states. We know that in the metro Oklahoma City area, for example, we've got a lot more Twitter usage in the metro area here, but when you get outside of that metro area, Facebook becomes the predominant communications. So we have to use both, we're using both, but, but Facebook seems to be more uh, geared toward in our view, longer term weather information, longer lead times, we call it. So if you have time to discuss a weather event coming up days in advance, and you have time to share information within your internal network of family and friends, uh, that, that seems to where, be where Facebook shines. But for the immediate warning type information, uh, Twitter with, with the more of a live news feed type, truly a, a live news feed type setup, uh, I, I prefer that for, for those more urgent weather situations. I, I want to walk through now some challenges of social media. And, and you've had some comments and thoughts on some of these. So I'm just they're going to be a list of them here. So we're going to kind of geek out on this challenge here. I think this will be an interesting discussion. You've commented previously that social media has forced your hand at times to start publicly discussing a weather event that you might have held off on in previous years. Is, is that a challenge? And uh, how do you deal with that? It is a challenge. I, I think in the end, it's usually a positive thing. But, uh, you know, we talk of one of the things meteorologists always wring our hands about is people sharing model data on social media and sharing a, a, a one panel of a GFS model, for example, hundreds of hours in advance <laughs> and getting right. an exact location of a weather feature or an exact snowfall amount. These, that weather data is something us meteorologists have been looking at internally in the office for a long time. And we're always looking at that. We're discussing it internally, but we always had the, we always had the uh, ability to control when we would start talking about that to our public safety partners and to the public. Not that we're withholding important information or anything, but when the, until the confidence got high enough that this was something we're talking about, we didn't do it. But with social media, once one person starts talking about a tornado outbreak 10 or 12 days from now, uh, we kind of have to get in the game and talk about it as well. Um, and, and that's not necessarily all bad. I mean, I think it, 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 does, it does force us in a way that may be too strong of a word to, to start talking about it sooner than we ordinarily would have, but it also gets the information out there. So I, I, it's, it's a... It's almost a form of competition. It's not really competition, but we talk about, you know, people talk about competition Competition makes everybody uh, do a better job. Well, in a way, the social media kind of, kind of making us get into that conversation sooner. Sometimes that's useful information and sometimes it's good to get it out there. A lot of times our involvement in the conversation is just, well, we know that this is being discussed. We don't, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what to say but at least we're engaged in the conversation. Yeah, and I, I would agree. There's a lot of what we call model la-la land stuff out there where you have these apocalyptic snow forecasts and um, sort of model canes that people are tweeting out there. And, you know, I cringe, Rick, because sometimes I'll see like some unassuming relative of mine that's sharing a website and some information that I know is not credible, but there's so much information out there. I mean, how do you control, how do, how do you control the message? I mean, you're the National Weather 
other service. So I, I view you as very credible on this, but then, um, you know, there's, there's something that's not credible out there, but people see it and sometimes people consume it as equally credible. How, how do we deal with that? Yeah, I use the word control and deal, and I think deal is the better, yeah, the better term. Sure. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there is any controlling. I know a lot of weather geeks and meteorologists would like to control it and would like to to stop it, but there is no stopping it. I mean, people are people are going to talk about weather. When I was that twelve-year-old kid in Olive Branch, Mississippi, terrified of storms, if I had had Twitter and Facebook. I probably would have been doing some of that same oh, stuff. So, you know? so oh, so would I. So Absolutely. Would I. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's kind of cool to have a job where people want to talk about it so much. All we can do in my official position here in the weather service and, and the weather service in general, um, all we can do is be a voice of calm and reason and be a voice of science-based service. And um, we, we can't drown out uh, all of the craziness going on on social media. All we can do is maintain a constant steady, reliable stream of information. And hopefully people will, will eventually, well, some people are going to gravitate toward that automatically. We, there's nothing we can do to compete with any of the, the craziness going on on social media. All we can do is do what we do. We talk about that to our forecasters all the time. We, we just do what we do. We just provide the information. Uh, that's, and that's really all of all any of us can do in the weather enterprise. I mean, we can get on there and argue and we can try to correct uh, mis, uh, dispel rumors and things like that. And, and we usually don't get into a lot of that unless it's just some blatantly wrong thing that's being posted about the weather service or about the forecast. Um, really that that's, you're just beating your head against the wall in a lot of respects, in my opinion, with that, you just have to do the best job you can do. We have to do the best job we can do in providing solid, reliable information. That's what we're here for. Yeah. One other thing that I've thought about and noticed from time to time is there is so much information on social media and it's quickly available. Uh, Some people have argued that it leaves people with a sense of information overload. Do we have too much weather information out there? Gosh, at times I think we do. I mean, if you had asked me at the beginning of my weather service career, could people ever have too much weather information? I would have probably laughed and said, no way they need, we can't give them enough. I think there's times when there's too much out there and not that it's too much. Um, when I say too much, I mean, sometimes people, it's the conflicting information I think that gets, that gets people when, and we experience that a lot here in the winter and in the severe weather season where people are seeing different outlooks from different sources, or they're seeing someone post uh, this map of the significant tornado parameter for 96 hours from now and there's a big red blob over my house what does that mean am I going to have a tornado I think sometimes it's the conflicting information uh, that, that causes issues so yeah I mean there's a ton of weather information out there and even people who are very smart very educated uh, sometimes can get confused by it you mentioned family members sharing things I have the exact same thing happen I, we see some of our partners sometimes sharing things that come from sources that are not an official source, but it's a source of weather information. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a ton of weather information out there if you're if you search around for it. Now, I want to sort of uh, sort of spin the problem a little bit. Uh, this is something that I dealt with a little bit as uh, president of AMS. You have different types of messaging of the same 
information. And what I mean by that is uh, much of the warning information flows from your offices, the weather service offices, but then you have different television stations and other media outlets that will then use their own value added colors and ways of representing the watches and the risk categories and telling people what to do during tornadoes. Should they stay in the house? Should they get on the road? What are your thoughts on this sort of multifaceted sort of messaging of the same information? Gosh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's frustrating to be honest. I mean, you know, you know, we, we talk a lot about consistency and consistency of message and we should all be saying the same thing. And I don't, I just don't think, I don't think we're ever going to get there uh, in the meteorology world. And I'm not saying that's all bad. I mean, um, so you don't, you don't think, you don't think we can get to a point where every single television station is using the same color scheme or the same sort of wording and messaging. I I don't want to say never. And I don't want to say, I can't just make a blanket statement because in some places it is like that. But here in Oklahoma city, for example, one of the most competitive TV markets anywhere in the world. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there, the, there are professional meteorologists that work at the TV stations that, that have their own forecast and that are providing the, the information that they believe to be the best possible information for the people that they're serving, just like we at the weather service are doing. It does cause confusion that the inconsistency does cause some of that information overload or sometimes um, information paralysis almost where people get conflicting information and don't know what to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, and I'm not saying it's all a bad thing, but I, I, I don't know that we'll ever get to the point where everybody is saying exactly the same uh, thing uh, in, with the weather messaging. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast and have a sprawling conversation with one of my favorite colleagues in the field, Rick Smith, uh, National Weather Service Office in Norman. And he has a lot of thoughts on some very important issues because it's something I often say is, you know, our forecast capacity is very good. Our, 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 our skill level is increased. We've got great radars. We've got great satellites. But getting over the finish line with the messaging is important. A great forecast is a bad forecast if people didn't consume it or understand it. So uh, really getting into this with Rick. Now, recently on another episode of Weather Geeks, we talked about something called the bust mentality, Rick. And this is this notion, particularly in May, uh, many meteorologists, including your office in the SPC, were forecasting a major severe weather outbreak, and some felt it didn't verify. Um, what is your thought on this mentality? of, oh, it, if we don't get sort of the expected number or if it didn't meet the expectation of those that are out there chasing it or whatnot, it's a bust. Give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, that we, we certainly had one of those events here in, in May of 2019. Uh, and it's not the only one we've had. And, and these busts or these forecasts that don't materialize exactly like you forecasted or exactly like people envisioned that it would, that's a fact of life in meteorology. I mean, this is not an exact science. We do our best job possible. Everybody works as hard as possible. Nobody wants to be wrong in a forecast. But on a day like May 20th of 2019, that was one of those very rare days where everybody I saw in our building, everybody in our office, people that I look to as barometers for, if they're worried, I really need to be worried. 
it was one of those days where we pretty much had to pull out all the stops based on information we were looking at uh, in the days leading up to that and that morning and even through the early part of the day. Um, and it didn't materialize exactly like uh, some of the forecasts were calling for. Um, I, I don't like, well, this is a, a, a dilemma that you, I know you've talked about and we, we've talked about in the past, this dilemma that meteorologists have about when you forecast horrible things, if you're right, then horrible things are going to happen to people. So when you forecast a tornado outbreak, do you want the tornado outbreak to happen so that your forecast is good and you look good for forecasting it? Or do you not want it to happen because you don't want a tornado outbreak to happen? Because to, to, it's going to affect lots of people's lives. And that's kind of that internal struggle and dilemma that goes on. Obviously, I would rather the forecast bust from a practical real life standpoint on a, on a day like May 20th. I would rather there not be a tornado outbreak because my family could have been impacted by that and, and hundreds of thousands of people would have been impacted. But from a service standpoint, I, you do worry. You do worry that, okay, we, we pulled out all the stops for a day like that. What's going to happen the next time we're forecasting a day like that? Are people going to remember that you, well, you said on May 20th, we're going to have a tornado outbreak and nothing happened, or we didn't get that much. Um, are they going to respond differently? That's what I worry about internally and as a communicator and as a weather service meteorologist. Everybody from our partners to the public uh, how how those how those perceived false alarms are going to impact their decision making next time? Yeah, that's that's the 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 line we tow to some degree. But I, I'm always of the camp that I I'm perfectly happy to prepare for the worst and come back to my house still standing and be happy and and prepare the next time as well. But having said that, even with some of the outbreaks and tornadoes that we saw even this year in 2019, some of them were impacting, and you guys get this all the time, impacting populated, urbanized, very densely populated areas, even cities. But yet I noticed loss of life was not as significant perhaps as it would have been in the past. I know in your area, for example, and Kevin told me this, um, using billboards and all kinds of out-of-the-box thinking, do you think the sort of -of out-of-the-box messaging in addition to social media is starting to pay dividends? I hope it is. I mean, there's no way to ever really directly measure that. That's one of the things that, you know, we have lots of social scientists friends here in the building and in the community. Uh, That's one of the things that we always talk about is like, we, we can measure the number of people that died or were injured or the number of dollars of damage, but we can't measure the opposite of that. We can't measure the, what, what our messaging did, did it result in a a reduced loss of life? Certainly this area in particular, and in many areas across the country, the messaging is very aggressive when it comes to before a severe weather event, for example, we are are working through the Oklahoma Emergency Management Agency with a local billboard, a digital billboard company uh, to put messages out on billboards. The Oklahoma Department of Transportation put messages on their digital signs on May 20th to tell people about the threat of severe weather. The TV stations are aggressive. Uh, we have social media. There, there's, there's, there's so many different channels and avenues that we're pushing weather information out. We have to believe that that's making a difference. I mean, we still have lost a lot. We still had, in our area this year, we had four people that died uh, in, in tornadoes. Uh, that's four too many. Uh, but how many did we save? How many didn't die because of the weather messaging? That's one of the questions that we 
don't have an answer to, but I have to believe it's making a difference. It seems to me. Yeah, I I would agree with that as well. Now, I want to talk about something that you alluded to a bit. You're in Oklahoma and people in that part of the country tend to be very weather savvy. So when you see the outlook categories at SPC, the Storm Prediction Center issues, or we throw the terms tornado watch and warning around, I think people in Norman, Oklahoma or in Enid, Oklahoma, you know, really don't flinch. They know what those things mean to the, to some degree. But in other parts of the U.S., I, I think it varies. Do you think that, that we need different messaging for different parts of the country? Or I mean, and, and, I, and the reason I ask this is because we pretty much use the same messaging. But uh, here in Decula, Georgia, where I live, I'm not sure people grasp those outlook categories as, as well as someone there in Oklahoma might. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and 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 a little secret here. I don't. Not that's not universal in Oklahoma either. I mean, we we face some of the same issues here with confusion over the terms "watch" and "warning," and certainly with the SBC outlooks. You know, a slight risk doesn't mean slightly severe. People don't. You know, there there is some some breakdown in in, in some of that. So yeah, I don't know. I I I talked about the a lack of consistency earlier. I I really don't know from a weather service perspective if it would be the best thing to do to have different words or messages uh nationwide i mean there is some, there is a value i think to having some consistency with that so if people are traveling or moving they may not completely understand what a watcher warning is but at least they're hearing the same um the same terminology um i think it's just a matter of it, it's just uh it's just a tireless effort in education and just reminding people things like you do all the time in your in your in your writings and your podcasts and everything that you do on social media to help educate people and remind people. I think it's just a tireless effort to just keep educating people about that. And um, some people in, in certain areas of the country, they just don't experience this very much. I mean, people in Oklahoma City may be in a tornado watch many times during a spring where someone in uh, other parts of the country may not experience one in a year at all, and it may be a kind of a rare thing. So it, there's so many variables that go into that as far as human response, human understanding, uh, how people behave when they hear those messages. And I, I think it's something really worth studying and looking at and continuing to try to learn more about through surveys and things like that. But uh, I, I don't know what, what the answer is to other than just continuing education on on what those terms mean, and more importantly, not just what the terms mean, but what are you supposed to do about it? Okay, I'm in a slight risk. I'm in a moderate risk this afternoon. We're trying to do a better job in our office to give people actionable, practical information. What exactly does that mean to me, and what should I be doing about it? I think that that's another aspect of, of the whole system. And, and, and related to that, uh, our producers uh, shared with me that you recently spoke at the National Weather Association conference about people who suffer from severe weather anxiety. And it actually has a term here. I learned something new today on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm not even sure if I can pronounce it. Is it lilapsophobia? You, you did better than I could. Yeah. A fear of... Uh well, there, there, there's a whole family of phobias related to weather, and I think that one is specifically thunderstorms. Is that right? 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm giving it in my production notes. It says the clinical name for severe weather anxiety, L-I-L-A-P-S-O-P-H-O-B-I-A, for those that are listening, if you can try to pronounce it. But, uh, but, but, Laxophobia uh, or something like I mean, that. But, but, yeah. but you, you talked about this. I mean, how, these, how do these fears materialize? Is it something that materializes at birth or just through experience? Oh, gosh, both. Uh, like like mine, I, I never experienced an event, but I, I was definitely a hardcore a storm anxious, potentially storm phobic uh, person as a kid. And uh, I don't think it's completely gone away. I, I, I still, it's weird in my job to, to say that, but I still feel it, especially if the storm's going to be impacting my, my house or my family. Uh, but it's a real thing. And we, and, and this is a nationwide thing. And it's not just related to tornadoes and severe thunderstorms. People in hurricane prone areas have it. People in air, we've talked to meteorologists who, have uh, concerned callers who are bombarding the office with phone calls if an ice storm or winter weather is forecast because they went through a traumatic experience being without power for an extended time. So there's different triggers. Some people are born with it. It seems what little research has been done that a lot of people acquire this fear either from indirectly by a family member being affected by a severe weather event or directly by them being in it. Um, in our area, we have a lot of people who have lived through uh, devastating tornado outbreaks, the May 3rd, 1999 outbreak. We still talk to people on the phone who were permanently impacted that at the mental health and emotional level. And they had just debilitating, in some cases, storm anxiety. They can't go to work. They can't sleep. They can't function. I think that's a small number of people. It's a real thing, though. It is a real thing. And it's something that, that uh, we've actually tried to develop some messaging for here to give people some tips on you know, um, we actually did an informal survey of people with storm anxiety and asked them what exactly is it about the storm that you're afraid of? And they gave us some really interesting information. I've, I've got a storm shelter, but I'm afraid I'm going to be buried in the shelter. So we've tried to provide a, a web page with resources to help people that are specifically afraid of that with some information to maybe help. I could talk on and on about it, but it, it, it is a real thing. And it's something that, uh, is not just an Oklahoma thing. It's not just a tornado thing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a real thing. I, I think I certainly know people that, that suffer from this. As we begin to wrap things up, Rick, I know you're an employee of the National Weather Service who's undergoing a weather-ready nation and has been doing things like shifting to more impact-based forecasting and things like the hazard simplification program and facets. All of these things are trying to help improve messaging and make uh, us a weather-ready nation. So uh, I Salute again, you all and your colleagues and my good friend, Louis Ocellini and others at the National Weather Service. As we end, I mean, you're an expert in, in, in meteorology and communication of our field. What should we as a whole, as meteorologists or weather stakeholders or community communicators start doing or considering doing today? in our social media posts. If you had a, sort of had a couple of best practices today that people can implement, what are a couple of them? Well, I think one of them is just to be there. And it's to, it's to be there, uh, not just in broadcasting information one way, just, you know, automatically posting warnings and forecasts and things like that, which is fine. But I think it's really important for us to be there and be interactive. And I think a lot of meteorologists that I follow and watch are very interactive on social media. Quite honestly, for some introverted, geeky meteorologists who got into this business to sit in front of a 
a radar screen or a computer and forecast the weather, it's not that comfortable to be interactive and engaging with people on social media. But I think one of the most important things, no matter what you're doing in the weather enterprise, is just to be there. You're looked at as an expert and you're looked at as an authority. So be there and don't put people down when they ask questions that you believe are stupid or that you've been asked 15 times that day already. It's, it tries your patience to be there, be a, make yourself um, look like that authority and be a respected uh, expert in the field that, that you are on social media. Uh, answer questions, engage with people. Uh, and you know, and you, can, you have to do that all year long. You can't just show up on a severe weather day and do that. To build those relationships, even with the public on social media, you have to be there before the storms happen. Yeah, that's a great bit of advice. One one thing that I would add, particularly for Facebook posts, if you're posting something about a weather event, uh, you might post it on Tuesday, but then on Wednesday, the models may have shifted or changed. Go back and delete that Facebook post from the previous day or at least put a date timestamp on it so people know that uh, when they see newer information that something may have changed. That's that's something that I've tried to do a bit more in, in some of my, my thinking. Last question, just something that popped into my mind when you were talking about don't, don't get angry or someone asked you a question, why is there so much hostility and angst in weather Twitter and out there in discussions in general about weather? Why do, why do people get so emotional and angry and snarky about this, Rick? Do you have any thoughts on that? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel it sometimes myself. I mean, meteorology is one of those, I think, unique professions where if I didn't have this as a job, I would be so passionate about it. I would be doing a lot of what I do anyway for free as a hobby. And a lot of us are getting to do the job. We're getting to, to do our hobby as a job and getting paid for it. So we're very, very passionate about the field. We're passionate about saving lives. We're passionate about helping people. We're passionate scientists who want to get accurate information out there. And part of it is when you see that it's not working out like that, it, 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 you kind of get defensive a little bit. I know that's kind of how I feel sometimes. No, that's not right. I want to correct that that's not you know, that county is not included or we're not expecting that outbreak. You know, we don't know enough, whatever, whatever the case is. So I think we just get very protective and very passionate about our field that so many of us love and so many of us, like I said, would be doing for free, even if we weren't getting paid for it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I, I think that's right. I, I'm, I'm passionate about this field as well. And so you, you are protective of it and you are defensive of it. And I, I feel that as well. So, Rick, I, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been amazing and I knew it would be. So I just want to thank you. Where, where can people follow you on social media? Well, the, uh, the best place is I'm on Twitter at O-U-N-W-C-M. And uh, yeah, I uh post weather information every once in a while, post something non-weather related, but it's a lot, a lot of weather, but yeah, uh, that's, that's the best place on Twitter. Yeah. A, a yeah, great follow. A and great also follow definitely and follow, follow his office. Uh, office I, I, I believe that, 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 that NWS and as well, the National Office. Thank you so much, Rick, for joining us on the Weather Gets Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Marshall. Appreciate it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time on the Weather Gets Podcast.